Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. Last Sunday, we started a new sermon series with the intentionally provocative title, Honest Mistakes, Malicious Heresies. We're focusing on three theological errors that Christians like us are particularly prone to make. These common missteps revolve around Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and us. So last week, we got a broad biblical overview of who Jesus is and what he has done. He is the eternal, uncreated, co-equal Son of God. In his incarnation, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death for sinners. He physically rose from the dead, triumphantly ascended to the Father's right hand, and will one day return as king and judge. And to reduce Jesus to anything less than that, a mere moral example, an inspiring teacher, or a political activist, is a mistake at best and a heresy at worst. But today we move ahead to our second area of study, and that is the Holy Spirit. Now, admittedly, the Holy Spirit is harder for us to get a handle on compared to the Father and the Son. There's less raw biblical material to work with, and the material that we do have can be a bit harder to grasp. And because of that, Christians are often tempted to go to one of two extremes— in our understanding of the Spirit. Extreme number one is that we neglect, forget, or ignore the Holy Spirit. Extreme number two is that we obsess and unhelpfully speculate about the Spirit. So this morning, we're going to try to avoid both errors. And that starts with a solid, basic, biblical foundation of who the Holy Spirit is, And what he does, the fundamentals, as Terry just said. We'll also address some honest mistakes and malicious heresies. And hopefully, when it's all said and done, have a deeper appreciation for the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. So, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But let's pray before we read. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who brings us together. And as we discussed last week, we can't afford to be wrong about Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning, like a week ago, hopefully, you would teach us, you would educate us about yourself. Because... Knowing you is the greatest gift we could ever receive. Thank you for revealing yourself to us so well in your word, even revealing yourself to us in your creation. But Lord, we especially thank you for your word as we attend our eyes to it. I pray that you would change us, shape us, form us in accordance with your word as we need to be changed and shaped and formed. Thank you for the people in this room. I ask that you watch over our time together of worship. May it be honoring to you and beneficial for us. 
I pray for the various needs that we bring into the building with us, uh, whether it's grief, whether it's stress, whether it's anxiety, whether it's uncertainty, uh, whether it's pain, whatever it is, I ask that you watch over us this morning, watch over our church well beyond this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would care for us and provide for our needs. Again, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. I pray that we would leave this morning with a better understanding of who you are in the person and work of your Holy Spirit, not just so that we would know more information or be able to spout out more Sunday school answers, but so that we can really truly appreciate and enjoy and depend upon your spirit. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's lay our biblical foundation on the Holy Spirit, and then we'll worry about some common errors. First, the Holy Spirit is the eternal, co-equal, third person of the Trinity. That is the equivalent of this is a football when it comes to the Holy Spirit. The eternal, co-equal, third person of the Trinity. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, at the very start of the Bible, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Chapter 2, starting in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." In chapter 2, we see God breathing life into Adam. And in both the Old Testament and New Testament, the word spirit contains this imagery, these allusions to breath, wind, and life. But what I really want you to notice from Genesis comes back from chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I want you to notice that the Holy Spirit... Just like John said about Jesus in chapter 1 of his gospel last week, the Holy Spirit exists before creation. The Spirit is God, not a creature like you and me. Now jump way ahead to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. This is where Jesus speaks to his disciples after his death and his resurrection. And Jesus says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You notice that Jesus speaks of one name in the Great Commission. But he speaks of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
The Apostle Paul does something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. He ends that book by saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Both of these passages are telling us that the Holy Spirit is the eternal, co-equal, third person of the Trinity. And then in Acts chapter 5, the Apostle Peter accuses a man named Ananias of lying to the Holy Spirit. And then in the next verse says Ananias lied to God. You put two and two together, that implies that the Holy Spirit is God. A fellow named Basil of Caesarea wrote that the Holy Spirit lacks nothing, is not a being who needs to restore his strength, abides in God, and is made like God. In short, he is God. That's why since 381 AD, Christians have recited the Nicene Creed, where we call the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life. That's because he, like the Father and the Son, is God. Second, because the Holy Spirit is God, he works in perfect unity with the Father and the Son. Now, this is not a sermon on the Trinity, though we can make a lot of honest mistakes about that theology as well. But for now, it's important to note that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three and one. Unified and distinct, working together for the same purpose, though functioning in different ways. We saw the Spirit present when the Father creates. The Spirit inspires Old Testament prophets who were called by God. The New Testament tells us that the Spirit is involved in Jesus' birth and throughout Jesus' life, all the way up to his death and resurrection. The Spirit works in perfect unity with the Father and the Son. And third, the Holy Spirit is personal. Jesus speaks of the Spirit in John chapter 14 as the helper. We just saw in Acts 5 that the Holy Spirit can be lied to. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul says the Spirit can be grieved And then in Romans 8.26, we read that the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. Now, it's true that the Bible uses impersonal imagery to describe the Holy Spirit. We see words like fire, water, we already mentioned wind, or even a dove at Jesus' baptism. But make no mistake, the Holy Spirit is personal. You may have already noticed throughout this sermon that I haven't referred to the Holy Spirit as an it. We use words like he and him when speaking of the Spirit, not because he's male, but because he's personal and because we want our language to mirror the Bible's language. The Holy Spirit is personal. So there's your basic foundation of who the Holy Spirit is. The eternal God, co-equal and cooperating with the Father and the Son, and personal. And that's important to realize due to some of the most common errors we might make concerning the Holy Spirit. 
We may view, speak of, or treat the Holy Spirit as kind of just lesser than the Father and the Son. But remember, we're Trinitarians, not Binitarians. One theologian calls the Holy Spirit the Cinderella of the Trinity. He says that too often the Spirit gets left at home while the Father and the Son go to the ball. May we not make that mistake. Or we may view, speak of, and treat the Holy Spirit as some vague, nebulous, theoretical force rather than a person of the Trinity. That's something that 60% of American evangelical Christians do, according to the Ligonier study that inspired this sermon series. One person writes that referring to the Holy Spirit as it, even though we might not do it on purpose, can be demeaning or even insulting. Another says that committing this error gives the impression of God up in heaven lobbing down tokens of his blessing, a.k.a. the force, while himself remaining all distant. And if that is how it is, then I can hardly have communion with this force or with the Father or the Son. The Spirit must be a power I can get hold of and use as I get on with my life. Some do magic. Others have money and the latest beauty products, but I use the Spirit. And if I manage to use the Spirit more than other Christians, hurrah for spiritual me. We want to avoid that mentality. Because the Spirit is God. He's not a mere force so we've got that basic idea of who the holy spirit is now let's talk about what he does well in the old testament and new testaments we see the holy spirit empowering god's people he empowers god's people in the book of exodus two men involved with building the tabernacle bezalel and aholiab are, quote, filled with the Spirit of God and inspired to teach. In Judges 14, Samson is empowered by the Spirit to rip a lion to pieces. And in chapter 15, he kills 1,000 men of Israel's enemies with that same power. I don't know anyone here who has either one of those gifts, but it did happen in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit empowers certain people often temporarily, for some specific, amazing, God-honoring task. Then we get to the New Testament, and we see the Spirit empowering Christians with various gifts for the good of the church. You see the whole list laid out in 1 Corinthians 12. But more than just giving us gifts, the Spirit empowers believers in Jesus to bear fruit for godliness according to Galatians 5. That's what we mean when we talk about sanctification. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He helps us learn to live out our status, live out our calling as saints. God says that we're saints at our justification when we believe in Christ. The Holy Spirit teaches us to act like it. In John 14 through 16, Jesus says the helper will give us courage to speak about Jesus. 
He'll give us remembrance of Jesus' words, and he will help us persevere through suffering in Christ's name. A Christian trying to do what God calls us to do and be who God calls us to be without the Holy Spirit's help is like a car without an engine. It may roll for a little while. It may look like it can move on the outside, but there's no power there. It's really just an empty shell. We need the Spirit's power. We need the Spirit's help. We also see that the Spirit has a knack for revealing things to God's people. We mentioned the Old Testament prophets. But then in the New Testament, we see the Spirit taking an even more active role in revealing who God is. He opens our eyes to God's goodness and our sinfulness in order that we might believe. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul speaks of a unique spiritual wisdom that is only found by those who have the Spirit. And this wisdom does not match up with the wisdom of the world. Paul speaks of a sinner's regeneration by the Spirit in Titus 3. If you want to sum up the word regeneration, one theologian writes, The leopard cannot change his spots. God, by his Spirit, must change the hearts of the people. That captures the meaning of that word regeneration. It's like when Jesus speaks in John 3 and speaks of being reborn. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can say Jesus is Lord and really mean it apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, we said that this is not a sermon on the Trinity. It's also not a sermon on the Bible as the word of God, though we very much believe that here. But it simply needs to be said that part of the Spirit's work of revealing who God is, is his inspiration of Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3, we read that all Scripture is breathed out by God. There is that breath imagery once again. So the Spirit empowers, he reveals, and he identifies. What do we mean by identifies. Well, how do we know that we belong to God? How do we know that we're really, truly saved? One good place to look is by the presence of his spirit who has sealed us, according to Ephesians 1. It's important to pay attention to the fact that in the Old Testament, While the Spirit may have temporarily empowered someone, we Christians have the promise of the Spirit dwelling within us permanently. But how do we know our brothers and sisters in Christ? That too comes back to the Spirit's presence. As Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 7 verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. The Holy Spirit reassures us that we belong to God, even when we doubt. But he also helps us discern who our siblings in Christ are, in order that we might not be led astray. And finally, the Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son. 
Some biblical scholars refer to the Holy Spirit as self-effacing. And what they mean when they say that is that one of the Spirit's core tasks is to point our eyes away from him and to the Father. Point our eyes away from him and to Jesus. That's not to say that the Spirit is inferior to the Father and the Son. We already talked about that. But he is humble in his function and in his role. And that alone gives us reason to be cautious of those individuals who attempt to place all the spotlight on the Holy Spirit and those movements that talk about him more than the Father and more than the Son. So the Holy Spirit is the eternal God, co-equal, cooperating with the Father and the Son, and he's personal. He empowers God's people, reveals God to us, identifies who the children of God are, and glorifies the Father and the Son. But now let's get to errors we might be tempted to make. We've already discussed two of them. The first was viewing the Holy Spirit as less than the Father and the Son. The second was viewing him as some vague force rather than a person. But what other mistakes might we fall into? Well, we should be careful when invoking the Holy Spirit to justify our actions. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we Christians have subjective feelings that can be very hard to argue against. And we say things like, well, I just really feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me in this direction. To date this person, to go to this school, to accept this job, to make this big move. And, you know, sometimes that can be true. But as St. Augustine warns us, We should be careful that our own spirit does not take the place of the Holy Spirit. We can often quickly convince ourselves that if we want to do something, if we think something is a good idea, then it must be the Holy Spirit when it could really be just us. Or it could be the burrito from last night. We need to be very careful that our own spirit doesn't take the place of the Holy Spirit. We should always be cautious about elevating our own subjective personal feelings and intuitions too highly. We should always subject our personal feelings to the scrutiny of Scripture. And while we're at it, to the collective wisdom of believers around us. Here's a good rule of thumb when it comes to discerning this sort of stuff. If you think the Spirit is leading you to do something that clearly goes against Scripture, that's not the Spirit. Because the Spirit is not going to contradict the very word that he inspired. And if you feel that the Spirit is leading you to do something that many wise and godly believers around you are advising you against, you should take that seriously as well. That's one error. Another is assuming that the Spirit always, only, and ever works spontaneously. There are some who believe that anything planned is bad. 
and anything unexpected is good. It's this mentality that if it's organized or institutional, it can't be of the spirit. And if it's totally off the cuff, then it must be of the spirit. It's tempting to buy into that because we sometimes romanticize surprising experiences and emotional experiences over boring old plans. Those are for squares. We forget that one of the gifts of the Spirit is administration, which doesn't sound very exciting, but it's one of the gifts. Now, it's true that the Spirit can upend our plans. We see that in the book of Acts. We see it in Paul's letters. He wants to go one place, and the Spirit makes him go somewhere else. But it's also true that the Spirit works through plans. Plans like the one Jesus understood himself to be obeying from the Father, for example. I once heard a story of a young preacher in a preaching course who showed up to class one day, was preparing for his sermon, but had no formal preparation whatsoever. He didn't have notes. He didn't have an outline. He didn't have a manuscript. He didn't have notes scribbled on a napkin. He had nothing. And when the older, wiser preaching professor asked him, well, where are your notes? Where's your preparation? What work did you put into this? The young preacher said, well, I'm just going to let the spirit lead me. And that older, wiser preacher responded and said, son, that's not inspiration. That's desperation. We romanticize these ideas of spontaneity. But just because something is planned, just because something is thought through, doesn't mean it's less than spiritual. Yes, the Spirit can upend our plans, but the Spirit can also work through our plans. And lastly, we must learn to be flexible in some of our opinions about the Holy Spirit. Ever since the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came to the apostles and they miraculously spoke in tongues, there have been debates about how the Holy Spirit works today. And the debates often come back to that particular practice of speaking in tongues. But it also concerns things like physical healing or prophecy. Well, at Prairie View, we have no hard stance on these issues. There is room for disagreement among believers. We haven't pursued the more charismatic gifts here at this church, But we also haven't actively stamped them out. We recognize that people may have different experiences. People come from different places and different traditions. And we're not in a place to say something is legitimate or illegitimate, necessarily. So if someone came to Prairie View and wanted to practice those more charismatic spiritual gifts here in this room on Sunday morning, our response would likely be something along the lines of, Okay, but if you're going to do so, we expect it to be done biblically. We expect it to be done in alignment with Scripture. And if you're curious about what that means, Paul gives instructions about it in 1 Corinthians 14. 
There are some who suggest that if you don't practice those gifts today, then you don't really have the Spirit. Well, we should be extremely hesitant to make those kinds of judgments. Because based on what we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, there's no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. No matter which gifts you practice. So to say that someone lacks the Spirit is to essentially say that they're not a Christian. And that is not an accusation we should throw around lightly. Many years ago, someone visited this church. And I was talking to them after the service, trying to be cordial and hospitable. And she looked at me and said, now, is this a spirit-filled church? And I kind of knew my way around this stuff enough to know that she was asking about these particular charismatic gifts. And when she asked, is this a spirit-filled church? My first thought was, well, lady, it better be. Because you're not a Christian if you don't have the spirit. So I certainly hope we're a spirit-filled church in that sense. We should be very careful about casting these sorts of judgments. Finally, there are disagreements about how or when the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, especially related to the practice of baptism. And to be honest, the New Testament doesn't give us a simple formulaic answer to that question. The book of Acts, for example, presents several different timelines. But the most important thing we should agree upon is that no sinner becomes a Christian apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. And a Christian is someone indwelt by the Spirit. We can split hairs and disagree on some of those finer points, but we should be on the same page about that. One final quote from Basil of Caesarea, who you may be more familiar with between now and next week. Through the Holy Spirit, we are restored to paradise, led back to the kingdom of heaven, adopted as children, given confidence to call God Father and to share in Christ's grace, called children of light and given a share in eternal glory. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds pretty important. It is. We would not be Christians if not for the Holy Spirit. So the least we can do is strive to understand him better and to avoid some of the most common mistakes and malicious heresies about him. The Spirit is a wonderful gift of God to believers like us. He grows us, reassures us, and gives us gifts for our good, the church's good, and God's glory. We should not neglect forget or ignore him, nor should we obsess over him, but we should absolutely thank God for him. One person called the spirit, the beyond who is within, the beyond who is within. And it's amazing to know that that spirit, the same spirit we read about in the Bible, The eternal God, the one who worked through the apostles, lives in people like us as we go about our everyday lives. May our words, our deeds, our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, and our priorities 
prove how good and powerful this indwelling spirit really is. And may it all be for Christ's glory. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And of course, thank you for your spirit. Thank you that when we pray, your spirit intercedes for us so that even now, as I pray, your spirit is at work. When we pray, there are things that we should say that we don't. There are things we shouldn't say that we do. There are times that we should pray and we simply don't try. But Lord, thank you for your spirit who intercedes for us. When we don't know what to say, when we don't know how to say it, your spirit works on our behalf. And that is just one of the many, many, many examples of the good work your spirit does on our behalf. So Lord, help us be grateful for your spirit. Help us recognize our dependence upon the spirit and coming to know you and learning to serve you, love you, and worship you. Lord, help us know the Spirit better. Again, not just so that we can become theological eggheads, not so that we can impress people with how mature we are, but so that we might give you the worship that you deserve, and we might benefit from these wonderful gifts of your Spirit, because we're just missing out on so much if we neglect this person of the trinity so lord thank you for the gift of your spirit lord jesus thank you for breathing your spirit out on your disciples at the end of the gospel of john thank you that you've given us the same spirit as we believe in you and lord we ask that your spirit would guide us direct us give us wisdom give us courage give us discernment compassion Humility, obedience, all the fruit, all the virtues of a godly life. I pray that your spirit would bring those to bear within us and without us. And may it all be for your glory. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.